Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Michael Miller, who is a professor of cardiovascular medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He has authored numerous scientific papers in cardiovascular disease with a primary focus on prevention. His most recent book is Heal Your Heart. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Gil. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so I want to start with a, a recent article from The Atlantic. Um, Did COVID-19 mess up my heart? in which a patient says um, that she got sick six months ago, now she can barely make it up the stairs. Uh, and the official name for her a new heart trouble, I guess is uh, postural orthostatic uh, tachycardia syndrome or PODS. Uh, and the condition is a puzzling dysfunction of both the heart and the nervous system, uh, messes with how the body regulates involuntary functions, including pulse, and uh, in the article, they say POTS is known to affect approximately half a million people just in the U.S., uh, typically young women. Uh, but now, uh, after COVID, um, previously fit and healthy women of all ages who have had COVID-19 are showing up at doctor's offices, complaining of inexplicably racing hearts. Uh, you want to talk a bit about it? Uh, and I know that we're going to get into uh, more CBD issues as we go, go through it, uh, but specifically related to POTS and what's happening in that, in that arena. Sure, Gil. Um, so, so as it's turning out, the more we, we learn about uh, COVID, the more we appreciate um, how unusual this virus is how unpredictable it is, and just um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the various uh, heart or cardiac manifestations. Yeah. But uh, but in this particular case, this is highly unusual because uh, this is an autonomic uh, or dysautonomia. So it's an abnormal function autonomic nervous system yeah. that uh, is quite unusual. Now we have patients that have POTS, and as you point out. Uh, in this condition, often in young women, uh, they basically, uh, when they're standing, there is pooling of blood in a lower portion of the body. Mm. 
Uh, and so blood is directed, if you will, away from the, the body, the brain. Uh, and the longer these individuals stand, the longer they experience uh, lightheadedness. And there's a rapid change in pulse rate. Mm -hmm. So pulse rate will increase by about 30 to 40 beats per minute when standing for more than 10 minutes. And, uh, and under normal conditions, you stand, your pulse rate might go up you know, five plus beats, give or take, depending, of course, how well hydrated you are, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but th these individuals, their pulse rate uh, goes up dramatically um, and they could experience a whole range of symptoms that include uh, things such as dizziness, lightheadedness, fatigue, poor concentration, uh, premature beats and so forth. Uh, but it's so unusual because uh, we don't see this with other viruses and mm. just like um, what we're what we're appreciating with uh, this virus, how how un, unusual it is. Uh, compared to the typical uh, viruses that uh, that whether it's a flu virus or other viruses that have come along, yeah, uh, the, this patient falls into that group that we're calling long haulers. Hmm. And what we mean by that is that there seems to be an emerging uh, uh, group of patients who, after they've experienced COVID, so now uh, most people are going to recover, uh, but there is. Uh, not an unsizable proportion of the population, maybe upwards of 10, 20 percent, perhaps even a little more, that are developing long, longer term complications. Of course, we don't know how long this is going to last in this individual, per se, uh, because we do know that in some cases that after six months or so, they start to feel better, but others may not. Yeah. And so POTS represents now just one of a group of conditions that uh, uh, that may or may not be heart related, but appears to be chronic. And some people have, uh, after they've been in, in the intensive care unit for a period of time because of COVID, have developed brain fog. Mm. And some folks refer to this as ICU psychosis. And, and again, taken a long time to resolve. So, so, so what yeah. percentage, uh, Michael, what percentage of the population uh, that we know, COVID infected population, uh, become long haulers? It's a great question. And I, I don't think we know enough at this point. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say it's probably, give or take, about one in five. One in five. So it's, it's one in so, five. Yes. Okay. And, so 20%, and, yeah. uh, sorry, sorry, Michael. So the 20% approximately, uh, we know that that, that population um, are showing variety of issues, right? Not just parts. And, you know, as an aside, I came back from New York. Uh, you know, first week, second week of New York with 103 degree temperature and, uh, you know, was sleeping for two days and it seems to have gone away <laughs> after that. I don't know if it was COVID or not, um, but it was quite prevalent in the tri-state area in, in December, January timeframe. So presumably we have a very high uh, infection rate in this area. I mean, we brought it, brought, you know, the problem, uh, you know, our cases down, uh, but the population is very, very highly infected, I think. It, there's no question. I happen to be visiting, um, actually, uh, my daughter, whose uh, fiance was at uh, in New Haven yeah. in graduate school, and uh, we drove up the day that New Rochelle, uh, the news about New Rochelle having this uh, uh, spread of infection. So this was in early March. Right. And that, that whole area, 
uh, has been, uh, as you know, was hit hard. Now, with you in your particular case, uh, you might have had it. Uh, you're very lucky, you know, just two days of fever because fever is is the most common uh, sign or symptom that accompanies COVID. It's yeah. seen in about uh, close to 90% of people. And if you and for one away after two days, you're quite lucky. Anybody else that you were with that had any had a fever? Uh, just yeah, just two three days, yeah. But nobody else in your group of people that. that um, yeah. And then my wife had something very similar <laughs> after that. Well, yeah. So it's hard to know. Maybe you did have it in a very mild case. Yeah. Uh, we do know the one thing tricky about COVID. Again, uh, there are so many unusual characteristics. But the one thing we do know is that. Uh, you can get a very mild case. Uh, so uh, now back in March, I'm sure you probably weren't wearing a mask. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, this was in January. Yeah. Oh, no, January. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this okay. is actually before it was widely recognized. And now we're thinking that uh, perhaps it was in the States uh, as early as December, as, as you point out. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so, so mechanistically, Michael, so this is a situation where the heart just doesn't have the capacity to pump the blood up into the brain and elsewhere. Yeah, so here, because of this blood pooling, um, uh, what what tends to happen is that when you're standing, you're uh, uh, because of the gravity gravity related effects and blood going down and not coming up the way it normally does, you get that pooling of blood, and so uh, there are changes in blood pressure, and and to compensate for that mild hypotension, the pulse rate has to go up. And so, uh, but here it's a persistent effect because of this uh, abnormal regulation of the, of the um, uh, sympathetic nervous system, right. and uh, and and as a result, you have all these effects. And so, so the recommendations are: you get a where you can. Uh, this is the one case where we recommend increase in salt intake, for example. <laughs> And there are medications, Metadrin, for example, to raise blood pressure and 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 uh, support stockings are quite important as well. Um, and some of the patients that we see that experience this, uh, that obviously was not COVID related, but the treatment paradigm would be the same. Will they get out of it completely? Is it, uh, uh, it's treatable, but is it really curable? Um, you know, a lot of our patients, it is not curable. Some are able to live with it and and do perfectly, you know, do reasonably well. And they just have to they just have to uh, understand their limitations. Yeah. So we're going to tell them don't don't arise out of bed quickly. You know, don't do things more deliberately than you would have ordinarily done or would have done before you uh, experienced this. Right. Yeah. So there's an, there's a paper. Uh, this is I think your colleagues from Johns Hopkins. Uh, the the, the Taco-Subo syndrome in the setting of COVID-19. And the paper talks about uh, the 58-year-old woman was admitted with symptoms of COVID, subsequently developed mixed shock, and an echocardiogram showed findings typical of stress or Taco-Subo cardiomyopathy. And uh, over the next few uh, days, her left ventricular function improved, supporting reversibility of acute stress cardiomyopathy. So so th this is more of an acute issue. Again, seems like generated by a COVID infection, right? Yeah. So this is interesting because it, there have been a few cases uh, that have now been reported. I believe the Hopkins case was the first. Yeah. Um, and uh, the way we understand the so-called broken heart, um, it's, it's known as Takatsubo 
uh, cardiomyopathy because the original description was in Japan. Mm. And Takatsubo um, is named for a Japanese octopus fishing trap. Oh. <laughs> so, um, and, and what happens is there's unusual, there's an unusual pattern of uh, contraction of the heart. And so what happens is um, it, it looks, there's a, a bulging, a balloon-like shape during ventricular contraction. Hmm. And the, the basis for Takatsubo is due to an outpouring of catecholamines like adrenaline or epinephrine that, that basically stuns the heart. Hmm. And uh, the, the classic description was in relationship to severe emotional distress, hmm. so an unexpected uh, death of a loved one. And so we believe that Takitsubo here may, in this particular case, the, 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 the patient did have um, evidence of, uh, uh, of, of having COVID, but there have been other cases of Takitsubo that have been uh, now reported, even in the absence of overt COVID positivity, but based upon severe stress that they've experienced. That could be personal stress, financial hardship, a death of a loved one again, because we've lost so many people in this, uh, in this pandemic. Mm. So um, in either event, uh, we would place Takatsubo cardiomyopathy as one of the potential complications of COVID, even if it's not direct, certainly as an indirect uh, a potential problem. Yeah, I have heard of diabetic cardiomyopathy. That is again, a, again, a shock, essentially a shock to the heart that it just cannot cannot deal with, right? Yes. And so, um, so when you have COVID, and let's say you have a severe case, one of the complications here is that uh, you know that the typical intervention you might envision for something like this is now has to be mediated in the presence of COVID. I would imagine. Yeah, yes. The, the, you know, so so what what happens is um, so I'll tell you the, the good news and the not so good news. I mean, from the standpoint, since I attend in in uh, coronary care unit one in our hospital system and, and it's not only us uh, at Maryland, it's throughout the country. We have noticed fewer hospitalizations for patients presenting with acute myocardial infarction or heart attacks. Mm. Uh, probably uh, we're down, I'm going to say, we were certainly down by at least 50% uh, back several months ago. We might be down now about uh, about 30%, but still quite down compared to what we see. Hmm. And um, so in, in one sense, what's happening is that I think a lot of patients um, may have, uh, that didn't have COVID, may have had a, a fair amount of trepidation to come to the hospital yeah. due to the fear of getting COVID. And so what may have happened to a number of these patients is that they had a, a heart attack at home mm. and then they came to the hospital subsequently because they had to, because they now develop, have developed heart failure. Yeah. And the, some of um, the post-myocardial infarction related issues. Um, so we have not uh, seen as many acute heart attacks mm. Uh, but when putting this into perspective, patients that have COVID, while they may not get the traditional so-called type 1 infarction, where there's a plaque, um, plaque rupture, for example, yeah. uh, they may get what's called a type 2, which is due to an imbalance, an oxygen supply demand mismatch. Mm. Uh, and uh, that may be the reason that they're now coming in 
uh, with um, uh, lack of oxygen to the heart muscle hmm. and causing this second, uh, secondary or type 2 infarction. So will it be true, Michael, that, so it, it's so interesting. So you, you, you saw a drop in patients coming in, uh, but if you look at type 1 and type 2 separately and mortality uh, after hospital admissions, um, has the type 2 and, and mortality gone up? So it's very interesting because what, what you, so, and, and, and a lot of this will be dependent upon how that patient is managed because traditionally, so type one patients got to go to the cath lab, they're going to have stent placement, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but in the type twos, we usually don't uh, intervene in that manner. What we try to do is, is treat the underlying comorbidity. So uh, in this particular case, many of them have bilateral pneumonia, which is characteristic of COVID. And so you have to improve their oxygenation. Mm. Uh, if, you're, uh, if they're being ventilated, they may uh, go on steroid therapy. So you're, um, you want to try to treat them from that standpoint. And uh, what we're appreciating now is um, something also very interesting in the COVID era, uh, because in a traditional heart attack, even when it's a type 1 or a traditional type 2, what happens is the cardiac enzymes, notably troponin levels, will go up yeah. and then they will come down. But in some, of the, in some of our patients who have had severe cases of COVID, one of the more adverse prognostic signs or measurements is a continued elevation in troponin. So that's uh, just, again, um, uh, a coincident with uh, a highly inflammatory process. Yeah. So not only is troponin elevation uh, remaining uh, quite high for a good period of time, but so are other biomarkers of inflammation, mm -hmm. traditionally CRP and, uh, and a host of other biomarkers that you may measure. And some of these individuals are developing with this full-blown inflammation what, what we often refer to as a, cyto, a cytokine storm, mm -hmm. what you're also getting is a myocarditis. Yeah. And uh, that appears, so you can get myocarditis as part of the acute picture, mm -hmm. or uh, as uh, uh, you may have uh, noted earlier, part of, uh, now it's becoming a pattern that we're seeing in long haulers. Mm -hmm. So in addition to POTS, you can place myocarditis into that group. Mm. And, and we're seeing that. And it's been reported in a number of college athletes yeah. and some ball players that have um, uh, one ball player that had to sit at the baseball season because of myocarditis. And it appears to be more, again, a long, more chronic condition. Mm. Some individuals that uh, even may have been relatively healthy beforehand. Yeah, I mean, this is. You know, two, two things I want to get your insights on. One is there's a lot of political spin around miscategorization of deaths. And, you know, it, it sometimes is nearly impossible to, to, to measure uh, what, the, what the foundational cause was, right? So you, you may have comorbid conditions and you may have gotten COVID, uh, you may not have. And so, so what is your sense that you know, the measurements we are taking, we have, I don't know, 6 million infections, 200,000 deaths across the, across the country, according to uh, the CDC. Um, 
what is your sense of those numbers? Are they underestimated, overestimated? What do you think? Well, I, I, so I, I think we're probably doing a better job in these numbers than other countries. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if we go back to China, uh, the number of deaths there, I believe, were, was probably to some degree underreported. Mm. Other countries like Russia um, probably have some degree of underreporting. Uh, now, there, there might also be some degree of um, underreporting here as well, depending upon how, uh, because some patients may not have been COVID tested yeah. and coming in acutely and um, uh, may have died a sudden death and may have not been categorized as having a COVID-related illness. And especially if we're, if we're saying a lot of folks are not going to the hospital because of fear of COVID hmm. and then happen to have some of these illnesses that come about. And uh, by the time they get to the hospital, they're, uh, or, or they're pronounced bef- by the time they get to the hospital, we may be underestimating some of these cases. Yeah, I was a little puzzled by, if you look at case mortality uh, in countries like uh, India, uh, it is, uh, it's about half of, of what we have in the U.S., now that could be, you know, that could be related to um, the, you know, not not being reported properly, as you said. But there were also some hypotheses around, you know, the the BCG vaccination, uh, you know, some other um, type of things that were going on in in developing countries that might be protective. Uh, did you see any evidence of that at all? Well, I mean, that brings up a good point, and especially in, in Asian countries, whether it's uh, Japan and Korea and so forth, where those numbers are much lower. So um, uh, case fatality rates are, 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 are lower in general, uh, and then you could maybe subscribe to the idea, well, there's much better um, use of uh, social distancing and and um, masking and so forth that may have accounted for that. The BCG certainly is plausible, yeah. so I think that may account uh, for for differences between our country and, and their country. I, I do think, like countries like Russia, it's just hard. You know, I was I was following coronavirus worldwide daily for um, you know for several months, yeah. and Russia never reported more the the death rate <laughs> never more than two hundred never got to two hundred right right never it was always in a hundred or below level yeah or something just you know didn't jive with what we're seeing here in the states yeah yeah and then you know there is a vital load issue too so it goes goes to masking so you know people talk about masks as sort of a binary thing uh, but it's also uh, because i think uh, let me ask you uh, that the viral load that you are getting is is correlated with the severity of the infection right that is correct and so wouldn't the mask then reduce viral load? I mean, it, it's not a binary thing. I mean, it is, it, is, uh, it is beneficial whatever way that you look at it. Yeah, it's, it, 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 there's no question that the viral load is an important to, contributor to how sick you will get. So um, a, a large viral load, even in an otherwise healthy person, can cause significant illness. And I think that, that that's really important. And conversely, a, a small viral load may not cause significant illness in a person uh, who you might think 
uh, you might be super concerned about. Um, so that that is that is uh, why it's even uh, been recommended that if two people in the same family are ill, they should still try to stay away from each other in order to reduce uh, basically sharing their viral loads together. Um, uh, so I think that uh, we have obviously in in our country it's it's quite divided uh, as you know i was um uh, there still rallies that have been ongoing there is very interesting to see the the understanding because some folks who were interviewed at a, at a recent indoor rally for for president trump said and i quote we would not come to a rally if we were sick and since <laughs> we are at the rally that means that we don't have the virus. Right. So uh, it's, it's, it's really the understanding that this virus is like no other in that it could spread in among uh, those individuals that are asymptomatic. Uh, and uh, we have these so-called super spreaders yeah. that infect multiple people and it has to be the right setting. So uh, if you're, we saw this in Seattle, there was a choir practice back in March. Uh, where uh, I guess one person had it and infected over 50 people. We also saw it recently at a wedding in Maine. Mm. Now, this was in, in, in an area in Maine where there, were, there was nobody that uh, had known there was a COVID case. But yeah. in the wedding, there was a person who was asymptomatic and passed it on to, an, I guess, another 50 or so people. And from and that seven people died and um, and just it's spreading like wildfire in in the, in those regions. Yeah. So I think that what we appreciate is that if you uh, this is so it, it's so basic <laughs> uh, we knew it's so basic that we knew about it a hundred years ago. Right, right, yeah. In the Spanish flu epidemic or yeah. pandemic in the uh, in nineteen seventeen nine eight nineteen eighteen they knew back then mm. that if you're wearing a mask and you're socially distant, distancing, the likelihood is extremely low of getting the virus. And if you do happen to get the virus, yeah. um, then uh, it's more likely to be uh, much less uh, uh, complicated from the standpoint of hopefully not requiring hospitalization and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, you know, uh, having a having a thought experiment. It, uh, we don't know if there are multiple uh, strains of the same virus in circulation, right? It could be potentially. Correct, correct. Yeah. And you know, if you look at the the overall population, uh, the virus needs the host to be alive uh, so that the the host can transmit to others. And so, if you if you look at you know the it, it seems to be deadly to those who are not mobile um, and and not transmitting, and it seems to be very mild to those who are moving around the super spreaders, and and ready to ready to transmit to anybody. But you know, and, and you you can listen to some of my colleagues. So, uh, <laughs> my colleagues in the medical profession, all of us health professionals, know how important it is to wear masks. I mean, there's no question. Bob Redfield, head of the CDC, yeah. is a colleague of mine. He was at University of Maryland before coming to the CDC. Um, Tony Fauci, uh, uh, Phil Pizzo at Stanford. I mean, all of these guys, yes. we, all, all the same mindset. If you wear a mask and you're standing six feet apart from someone, 
the likelihood of getting this virus, both of you wear a mask, is extremely low, extremely low. Yeah. Um, and it's only really when you're in, in, especially if you're in enclosed quarters and, and um, not following these rules, you would, you know, you could run to, to concerns. And I, I tell my kids, would you go, would you go into an enclosed area if you knew there was a poison that you couldn't detect like carbon monoxide? Yeah. Would you go there? Would you take that chance? <laughs> of course, my sense said, no, I'd wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very analogous, right? It's just that it's not, it's not positioned that way. And, and obviously, there's a lot of confusion, as you know, in the airwaves. And so for the public to internalize that the real risk of what is being done has become almost impossible. Yes. It's, it's become very, when you're getting mixed messages, it is very difficult, except, again, we keep coming back to two words, two words that I learned many years ago from my grandfather, and it's common sense. <laughs> yeah, when in doubt, that never fails. Uh, I want to touch on another article, Michael. So this is a JAMA article. Uh, myocarditis has a chronic effect. They have a, a prospective observational cohort study of 100 patients. And uh, there's a lot of data in this. Do you want to uh, sort of uh, summarize what they found there? Yeah, so then, then this gets again to that, that whole issue we've been talking about of this uh, so-called uh, a cytokine storm and 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 the trick about this illness is that it invades. So you're invading not only uh, cells through the ACE2 receptor that uh, you, it's kind of a docking station, uh, so that the spike protein could then uh, get into the cells and and then uh, uh, allow for a viral replication. And then of course you have to. On top of that, we have our own uh, immunity, both an innate and acquired immunity to kind of fight that. Yeah. Uh, but th this virus likes to, to wreak havoc on our, on our vasculature. So it's not only in muscle, but it's in the endothelium, or muscle cells, I should say, respiratory cells. It's in the vascular endothelium. Mm. So we can get a, a significant inflammation uh, in the vessel wall, so you can get um, not only inflammation of muscle, you get inflammation of the vasculature, so you can get myocarditis, vasculitis, uh, enhanced coagulation, because once you invade the endothelium uh, and the endo endothelial function is is abnormal, then there is release of, of basically uh, a, a number of uh, chemicals that can, that, uh, can lead to a platelet coagulation and um, and uh, uh, or, or platelet clumping and uh, and uh, coagulation and yeah. that is a problem that we're seeing with this virus that we haven't seen with others in the sense that patients are developing early clots and you could check D dimer early on that's been uh, an ongoing issue and 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 in, and in effect what then happens is you have to treat the patient with uh, anticoagulant therapy to try, uh, which was not done early on. Patients were having severe clotting issues and pulmonary emboli hmm. and a whole host of complicating factors that um, uh, in many cases led to prolonged hospitalization or death. And so one of the, one of the issues here is that this virus, like no other, uh, 
could wreak havoc in so many different ways that you really have to keep your guard up at all times. And, 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 and that will parlay even after we get a vaccine. I'm sure we might cover this. Yeah. But a vaccine in of itself is not going to do the trick, at least not in the early stages. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, the FDA target that they announced was a 50 percent uh, efficacy for the vaccine. And uh, I think the typical flu vaccines we get every year is more like uh, 65, 70 percent. And so, you know, 50 percent. I don't know exactly what that is going to do, but that's the target. Well, yeah, I mean, so so 50 percent means obviously there there's a lot of room for. Uh, individuals, even if you get up to 75%, uh, then uh, then we're going to say one in four is uh, will have an effective vaccination, yeah. uh, in which case that person uh, is susceptible to developing that. And, and if he or she is not protected by wearing their mask um, uh, and socially distancing, it's going to be a problem for a period of time. Now, how long is that period of time? So because if, if you're looking at developing... Um, at least getting two thirds, if not three quarters of the population mm. uh, vaccinated to um, induce this so-called herd immunity. It's got to take some time because, again, it's a, not a one shot deal here. Right. Some of these vaccines, uh, some of these vaccine makers uh, need uh, two, uh, two shots right. with about a month apart. And then you've got to give time for the antibody response, which is another give or take two, three weeks. Mm. So you're looking at even. Even if the vaccine is approved by late October, early November, which I think most of us don't believe that'll happen, but even, but even if it does happen, then you're still looking at uh, the early part of next year, first and second quarter of next year, if not the third quarter, to get a substantial portion of the population adequately uh, protected. Yeah, and you know the the. You know, in this country and and probably around the world as well, we have a very large cohort of anti-vaccine people, uh, and I think in the U.S. it's about one third of the country. And so, even if you get a vaccine that is two third efficacious, and one third of the country refuses to take it, uh, there is no way we can get to herd immunity anywhere close to you know the two third mark that 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 it requires, right? And, and Gil, and, and, and now take that, which you just said, which is absolutely concerning, but now take the fact that in these vaccine trials, we are not sufficiently testing groups of people such as um, uh, minority groups, underrepresented uh, groups, yeah. and we're also not testing older people, the people that are viewed at high risk, right? Um, people of color number one, uh, and older individuals right. the older the, over the age of 65, they're just not being tested in adequate numbers. And so if a vaccine is approved and we haven't uh, sufficiently tested these high-risk groups, right. will the FDA, uh, can the FDA really approve the use of vaccination in, in those particular populations? Yeah, I remember a lot of excitement uh, about a phase one trial uh, which, as you know, is uh, healthy males under 40. Uh, and eight of them um, developed antibodies in that phase one trial. Uh, and, and people said, you know, oh, that, that means that the vaccine is just about to, uh, about to come to fruition. Um, it, it's, it's really difficult to accelerate these processes, right? There are some inherent limitations. 
uh, it needs to be very population. Uh, as you say, the population has to be represented before we can really make a conclusion as to, you know, it can be provided to the entire population. And, but 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 in truth, Gail, in all fairness, I mean, yes. this, this whole process has has uh, definitely gone at, at very high speeds. It's, That's true. You know, we've never seen anything quite like this. So um, uh, that that, of course, is a positive. Um, but again, it's negated by as uh, or, or I guess it's uh, in, in part um, uh, what 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 we discussed about the fact that a lot of people don't want a lot of people are anti-masking, uh, don't want to get vaccinated, et cetera. So it, it's it's going to be a problem for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah. So so in this study, you know, it, they say that um, we demonstrate cardiac involvement in 78 patients. There were 100 patients in the study, study so 78%, and ongoing myocardial information in 60% with recent COVID-19 illness, independent of pre-existing conditions, severity, and overall course of acute illness. And so these are fairly high numbers, right? They're very high numbers, and and again, a lot of the, as we pointed out, um, uh, some of these individuals uh, are young, athletic, otherwise athletic, yeah, and uh, you know, without pre-existing care. So, I, th- I think a key thing to 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 realize is that anybody can get the virus. So, you, you, when when you're talking about people that are at high risk. Uh, older people, people that have risk factors, it's not getting the virus. It's some of the complications of the virus. But these young people who got the virus develop these severe complications. Yeah. Um, uh, that That is more chronic. And that is why this virus is so, so problematic. Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, interesting that we don't really talk about a disease burden, partly because we don't really have the data yet. We have only, you know, four or five months of data. Um, it is the case, I believe, uh, in the Spanish flu, uh, 1918, 1919, uh, about a million people that survived it uh, 10 years later showed Parkinson's disease. Mm. Um, there are, you know, sufficient indications here that it, this has some effect on the, on the nervous system, loss of smell, some, you know, sort of early indications. And so we haven't even begun started to really think about what the long-term cost of this is going to be, right? I hear a lot of young people saying, yeah, I know, let me just get it and be done with it. Uh, Two problems there. One is the long-term effects that we don't even know. The other is there is, I think, also indication that reinfection is quite possible, right? Yes, and, and that's been reported. The reinfection has been reported. It's uncommon, but it has been reported. But I agree with you. I'd be concerned about potential neurodegenerative damage uh, over a long period of time uh, that we just don't appreciate at this time. So we know that it appears that the virus appears at least um, uh, to not only get into the myocardium, but to get into nerves, to get yeah. into the neural system. So it's, it's problematic. Do we know anything about, um, you know, sort of the reactivation potential here, you know, like chickenpox or something? It is still resident, but uh, but inactive and then at some point shows up again. Yeah. So uh, uh, a great question. I, I just don't think we, we have that information yet at this time, because, again, reinfection rates seem to be relatively low and, and they seem to be or uh, seem to occur in those individuals that probably had a milder case. 
Yeah. So on the one hand, uh, if you have a milder case, you're more likely, uh, hopefully, not to get some of these effects. But again, it's so unpredictable because that patient who developed POTS syndrome uh, looked like uh, was making a recovery and then developed it subsequently. Right, right. Then, then that person did not require hospitalization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you know, you are the expert at this. Once once you have some sort of a cardio issue or cardio event, uh, it's really difficult to get back to where you started, right? So, so that is why, you know, one of your focus areas is really prevention. Prevention is probably 10 times more important than treatment. Yeah, I mean, we could let, let I mean, let's talk about prevention. So yeah. on the one hand, now the good news is about stress cardiomyopathy. If Takotsubo often does recover, not always, but there's a pretty good chance of recovery um, to, to normal or near normal. So if this is, if this was an acute event, an outpouring, and you, and you support that patient, get, get him or her through that acute uh, phase, uh, then um, uh, towards the end of hospitalization, and even in, in this particular case, was reported um, a heart uh, left ventricular function does recover yep. to a, a, a good extent. But in other cases of myocarditis, uh, so different than Takotsubo, but myocarditis um, in a, a pretty sizable proportion of patients, they may have long-lasting effects. Now, again, mm-hmm. it's too early to tell how many of our patients will recover. Usually at least 50% will, but again, too early to, to tell here. But what can we do? I mean, I guess the, the big question is, what could we do? You know, talk to Tony Fauci. What does he do? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what Tony does do, which is interesting, is he, he takes vitamin D. Yeah. I think he takes vitamin D and vitamin C. And there have actually been some papers supporting the notion, uh, small-scale studies, but uh, clearly, those individuals that have low levels of vitamin D will will define them as somewhere below twenty. Right. That uh, it's it's a, it would be reasonable for those individuals to take a supplement of vitamin D. And how much should you take? Well, uh, we don't know much. Uh, for, there's no recommendations for COVID, but NIH does recommend if you do have low vitamin D to cons- to to consider supplementation with somewhere about six hundred uh, international units a day. Uh, if you're over the age of 70, perhaps 800 international units a day. Um, if you have osteoporosis or if you have some other risk factors, if you have limited sun exposure, perhaps perhaps uh, up to about 1,000 international units a day. So the, the small-scale studies did seem to show that individuals that um, uh, that had taken vitamin D tended to do a little bit better. Yeah. But, yeah, vitamin D regulates immune function. It makes sense. It modulates, can improve inflammatory response. So it would seemingly make sense to, to at least do that as a preventive measure. Yeah, I have seen a few vitamin D studies, and all of them appears to indicate it's a good thing. Uh, is there any connection, Michael? You know, we see a higher level uh, of people of color being affected by it. And my understanding is that a colored skin is less efficient in producing vitamin D, right? That is, that, that, that is correct. Melatonin, that is correct. So I wondered if there is any connection there too. Obviously, you know, it's a complex question because of all the comorbid issues. No, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I don't know uh, the extent to which uh, people of color have, have been looked at, specifically with respect uh, to having COVID and vitamin D levels. It's a good question. Yeah, yeah. 
And so in conclusion, Michael, you know, if you, if you look forward, um, we have very little data. There is some data coming out of China that might, that might um, give us a better insight into it. It looks like we have gotten better at treatment, right? Um, you know, such as uh, ventilators and, and things like that that were tried early on didn't seem like um, the right thing to do for most patients, it sounds to me. Um, but uh, but what, is your, what is your speculation? Let me ask you that way. Uh, looking forward six months, one year, um, you know, there is obviously an uncertainty around vaccines. We'll probably get something, but, you know, uh, the odds of it being 90% efficacious is going to be quite low. Uh, so given that, where do you think we will be in, you know, six months to one year? Well, I think we'll be in a, in a much better place. I, I think we will have vaccine, vaccination, um, even if we don't have uh, most of the population vaccinated, I think we will be in a place where there are going to be fewer infections because of, uh, uh, I'm guessing that perhaps by in six months from now, uh, at least 20 to 30% of the population will have some degree of vaccination. So I think that's going to help. Um, again, I think if we ha ha have the coordinated effort of, of realizing that even after you're vaccinated, mm. at least for now, you still need to socially distance. Yeah. That's key. You still need to wear masks. If I were to recommend a mask that is now readily, because back in March, we didn't have a lot of um, this PPE, a lot of this personal equipment, but we do now. Yeah. So you could even go, I went on Amazon before you could even get a level three mask, which is a surgical mask. Mm. So you could readily purchase that surgical mask would be protective when you're indoors. Yeah. And that would, that would be a recommendation to get a, a, a good high quality mask uh, that you could wear. Um, and so I think that's going to help a, a good deal. I think uh, as you point out, some of the medications that are being used right now, remdesivir is being used. We talked about, um, uh, some steroids uh, yeah. uh, that that can prevent uh, some of the dire complications. So, getting patients that are ill, uh, getting to them early—that's that's also key. But treating them now, it, it's been uh, uh, you know one of I guess some of the dis one of the disappointments has been. Uh, the fact that convalescent plasma has not worked. Right, right. And but but interestingly, I and, and I'm not sure why they were not doing convalescent serum mm. because convalescent there's a difference between plasma and serum. By yeah. the way, so plasma contains fibrinogen and other clotting factors. So it's not clear to me why you would give uh, convalescent plasma to someone who you're concerned about coagulation or procoagulation as opposed to convalescent sera, which yeah. doesn't have those coagula co coagulation factors. Uh, so perhaps uh, some ongoing studies that might look at convalescent sera, uh, maybe uh, used at an earlier stage might show something else. We is, that, um, is that scalable though, Michael, even if we find, find it to be effective, is it scalable? Uh, it might be to a small extent. Yeah. Yeah, okay. it's, it's probably not going to be to the level as where uh, if we're considering uh, antivirals that are being tested now, other antivirals yeah. um, uh, that, that might work in the future. So I think some of those might come along, oral medications 
uh, in combination that are being tested right now, uh, oral antivirals that are uh, beyond remdesivir that are being looked at. Yeah, I saw, um, just very quickly, uh, I saw a drop in case fatality in the U.S. as the disease progressed. And I wondered if it is a numerator effect or a denominator effect. Uh, is it because people, people getting infected are younger? Or is it because we have figured out how to treat this a lot better, or maybe both? I think it's both. Uh, clearly, um, the fact that we are, I think, uh, able to treat these patients a, a bit better. Um, we're not uh, as overloaded as we were, especially in the Northeast, when New York and New Jersey were being bombarded with so many cases and, and uh, just uh, didn't have the bandwidth to really effectively uh, take care of all these uh, individuals. And now, and then, of course, it went to Arizona and Florida and Texas. Uh, but I think things are under a bit better control, identifying patients a bit earlier uh, and starting some of these therapies a bit earlier uh, would be helpful. Uh, and as you said, a lot of the people that are getting infected now are younger people. And yeah. of course, they have a much more favorable prognosis, much less likely to uh, need hospitalization. Right, right. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Michael. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with, uh, with this research. Uh, thank you very much, Gil. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye.